Good day. Uh, you're tuned into the 26th edition of Free City Radio. Uh, I'm your host, Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Thanks for being with us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's winter here in Montreal, um, so it's been pretty cold the last week. It's the 26th of January, and uh, we have a great uh, episode coming at you uh, today. Um, I have some conversations with people in different parts of the world that I wanted to share. Um, so thanks for tuning in. I'm going to start um, the program today um, with a exchange that I had with Len Olea, uh, who is the managing editor of uh, Bulatlat, which is the longest running um, independent media uh, website in the Philippines. It's uh, coming up on 20 years. Bulatlat has a long uh, tradition of giving voice to marginalized communities and experiences in the Philippines, um, the voices of social movements, but also looking at experiences of indigenous people, peasant communities. Budlatlat is uh, an excellent project, um, and it was really an honor to speak with Len uh, about her work. I called her in Manila. Uh, so here's our conversation. I'm Len Oleya from Manila. Uh, I work for Budlatlat. It's the longest-running online media outfit in the Philippines. Uh, we will be celebrating our 20th anniversary this February. Uh, so Bulatlat came into being because there was a dearth in the reporting of issues of the marginalized and oppressed sectors in the Philippines, particularly farmers, indigenous peoples, workers, etc. So they are issues are largely ignored or underreported in the corporate uh, media in the country. So Bulatlat, along with other alternative media outfits in the Philippines, strive to fill in the gaps in the reporting, especially from uh, the grassroots communities. So we will be celebrating our 20th year and we are happy to be contributing to the truth-telling from the perspective of the sectors that really matter in the Philippine society. Thank you, Len, um, uh, for sharing that. So this this past year, but actually longer than that, uh, Bulatlat has been really working to try to um, highlight the complexities of um, the ways that political killings have been happening in the Philippines. Mainstream media globally really ties uh, those uh, acts of state violence to um, the so-called war on drugs. Uh, we've seen in the United States the ways that state violence is perpetuated against marginalized communities through uh, discourses like the war on drugs. Um, you've had you've had a similar um a similar um well not similar you've had a similar type of rhetoric being deployed uh in the philippines under the current administration so i'm just wondering if you could give a bit of the analysis that bulatlat has been sharing which shows a more systemic analysis to these uh acts of state violence um around the quote-unquote war on drugs, but how that impacts society more generally. Yes. Um, uh, so in the past 20 years, human rights reporting has been really the focus of our media organization. So under the Duterte administration, 
uh, his so-called uh, war on drugs actually victimizes um, the poor. Um, mostly those who are in the informal sector. And this is really alarming because uh, due process is thrown out, <laughs> thrown out in the window. So most of the victims are extrajudicially killed and there have been a documentation of these cases. However, the level of impunity in the Philippines is really um, so bad that no one has been uh, persecuted for the killings. Uh, in fact, um, there is only one case that reached the, the court, but uh, the police uh, officers involved were just relieved from their position. But uh, this is really a state policy because Duterte himself ordered his troops to shoot anyone um, all the drug uh, users. And this also has extended to uh, political dissenters. So the pattern of um, extrajudicial killings we have seen in the so-called war on drugs, it's not really a war, but, but a campaign of annihilation of the poor, has been, ha, ha, is being used again in the political um, persecution. Of, of it is. So we see the pattern of um, the raids of houses and offices and then the planting of evidence, so firearms and explosives, and then um, uh, being slapped with trump up charges. In fact, it has gone so bad that even journalists, community journalists at that, have become victims of such a modus operandi. Uh, I can cite the case of, for example, um, Frenchy May Kumpio, our colleague in Tacloban, it's in the eastern Visayas, um, central part of the country, who has been in jail for almost a year now over trump-up charges. So their office was, was raided and police planted uh, firearms and explosives. And she was also named or labeled as a high-ranking New People's Army. Even if she is being seen in the city every day because she runs a radio program in Tacloba. And another case is that of Lady Anne Salem, uh, an editor of an online media outfit, uh, Manila Today. She was among the seven arrested uh, last December 10, International Human Rights Day. She has been in uh, jail over Trump up charges again of... Um, illegal possession of fire, firearms and explosives. And then, of course, uh, the red tagging in, in, in the country has been really bad. And um, this has translated to physical harm and resulted in extrajudicial killings of human rights defenders. And we hold uh, Duterte account accountable for these atrocities because he himself also publicly vilified human rights defenders, even ordering his troops to kill um, members of Karapatan and other human rights defenders. And we have um, dozens of Karapatan members being killed in the past few years under this administration. So um, we're really, the, the situation is uh, miserable, but we 
we remain hopeful because the international community, we, we, we see the solidarity of uh, different organizations in the world and we uh, um, victims of uh, human rights violations have uh, sought all legal remedies to seek justice. Then thank you for mentioning uh, the targeting of Karapatan. Um, so just to, for people who don't know, that's one of the primary uh, human rights organizations in, in the Philippines. Um, and um, I guess just to think about the ways that the war on drugs, I mean, as it's, I'm just using this term uh, because it's used globally of the Duterte administration um, is used as cover for political violence against opponents. Uh, thank you for highlighting these cases of the targeting of uh, journalists who are independent and reporting critically on uh, government activity. Um, we've seen the ways that systemic violence is used for displacement uh, in the context of um, sort of discourses around um, um, drugs, uh, also in Latin America, for example, in Mexico and Colombia, the war on drugs in quotations, of course, was used to displace indigenous peoples and uh, uh, farming communities, peasants, um, and uh, used as a tool of political violence. For people to understand the importance of land in the Philippines and the ways that the state uh, actually needs to consistently uh, displace uh, communities, uh, whether it's indigenous communities, but also to uh, undercut the land rights of um, farming communities, uh, rural peoples. Um, can, you, can you illustrate a bit how those two things are connected? Uh, yes, uh, most of the victims of actual ju judicial killings are farmers and indigenous peoples. So in the Philippines, seven out of 10 farmers have no, have no land of their own. So big business, uh, big landlords who also dominate politics in the Philippines. So they are, they are uh, in Congress, Senate, and uh, uh, they're the big politicians. So the, their political and economic interests intertwine and the policies being um, legislated by the big landlords, of course, favor their interests. So in the Philippines today, there have been uh, many so-called development projects that displace indigenous uh, peoples and farmers. Mm -hmm. And because uh, these communities resist uh, the encroachment on their land and in defending their ancestral domain, this uh, result in violence. Uh, I can, I can cite, for example, the struggle of the Lumad, uh, especially the Lumad uh, youth who have been uh, disenfranchised and denied of their right to education just because they put up their own schools. And these schools are uh, asserting their identity as indigenous peoples and uh, the curriculum is very progressive their education is really linked in their every in their day-to-day -day activities and um, they become critical of of the aggressors of those who come uh, to take their land and because of that um, uh, of that awakening and that empowerment that 
these schools have been building among the Lumad youth, the Duterte administration labeled these schools as schools of the communists. So you can imagine how out outrageous is that. And uh, he publicly declared or ordered his state forces or threatened to bomb these schools. And this resulted in the closing down of 178 Lumad schools in Mindanao. And um, some of these um, Lumad youth actually sought sanctuary at the University of the Philippines. It's a national university in Manila, located in Manila. And now they are facing yet another threat because uh, the defense secretary, defense official in the country, has terminated a long-standing agreement between the University of the Philippines and the Department of National Defense, thereby allowing state security forces to enter the university. So you could imagine the mental anguish and psychological um, distress that this uh, has brought to, to these children. Uh, so it's been really a long struggle for, for the indigenous peoples and farmers uh, for, for the Filipino farmers during this, uh, the longest uh, lockdown, uh, they have not received any sufficient aid from government. And agriculture has been liberalized that the local produce of our Filipino far farmers are, are not getting, um, are, are going into waste because uh, they cannot um, compete with the prices of with the global prices of agricul agricultural um, products coming in the country. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing these points of context, uh, Len. And I really encourage people to check out the website bulatlat.com. Um, B u no b u l a t l a t dot com, um, I believe, uh, for for more information. Um, so. Uh, Len, I'm wondering, just the last point would be um, just if you could speak a bit about your work as a journalist um, and the importance of sustaining this project that you work on, but, um, but also um, the importance of, you know, people listening to local grassroots media when covering, you know, or, or not even when covering, when looking to the situation in the Philippines. I mean, you know, there has been some re good reporting on Al Jazeera English, uh, but other than that, I mean, it's hard to find good material um, uh, for a global audience. And you do so much work to share all these stories about what's happening. So can you talk a bit about what drives you to do that work and, um, and also just, just underline a bit the danger that journalists do face. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, as I said earlier, there, there was a dearth in the reporting of the issues of the marginalized. And uh, the Philippine media landscape has not changed in the past um, 30 years. So even after the restoration of the so-called democratic institutions in 1986, after the toppling of uh, the dictator Ferdinand Marcos, uh, nothing has really changed because um, big business control the, the information and 
they own the big business in the country. For example, um, uh, some owners of the biggest uh, media companies here are also into mining, in real, into real estate, into energy, uh, uh, communications, telecommunications, etc. So um, you cannot expect them to publish stories that, that con conflict with their own business interests. So the indigenous peoples of Lumad, for example, uh, their stories of struggle against the encroachment of mining companies cannot be cannot be read in, in print in, in the major dailies here. Uh, the same with, with um, uh, workers' uh, rights or struggles for, um, for uh, decent work and, and um, security of tenure because these media companies also practice um, contractualizations or flexible labor. So the continuing relevance of um, progressive and alternative journalism remains in, in the Philippines. And um, it's very important now because uh, Duterte has unleashed his terror and has inflicted um, the biggest violations on press freedom. You could imagine the, uh, our biggest TV network, ABS-CBN, mm -hmm. has been uh, denied of franchise or the license to operate. Mm -hmm. So you could imagine the chilling effect this has uh, caused to other um, media companies. So um, our colleagues in the dominant media, most of them, we have friends who work in the dominant media. We could not um, blame them for feeling um, uh, rather... Um, be, being careful, really careful, before posting anything or before writing anything critical. But uh, we stand uh, side by side with them in the fight, in the defense for press freedom. So uh, it's really uh, an interesting time also to be a journalist now in the, in the Philippines because um, uh, even though there are limitations in in the dominant media where some of our colleagues uh, work, work, work with, we, we also see how they, how they try to assert their independence, uh, even if uh, the Duterte administration has, has done um, all forms of attacks. So from filing off um, uh, Trump of charges, uh, filing of tax evasion cases against rapper, for example, shutting down of ABS-CBN, and red tagging of uh, media outfits, which does not uh, uh, limit to the alternative media, but even to members of the National Union of Journalists of the Philippines. It's the biggest organization of journalists in the country. So you could imagine uh, Duterte having this policy, of unwritten policy, of treating journalists as enemies of the state so the challenge really is so big for alternative and small um, community media outfits like Bulatla because um, we have no commercial interest so we can publish anything we we do not fear any political uh, faction so uh, to a certain extent we are freer 
compared to our colleagues in the dominant media. And so the, the, the responsibility is so huge that we uh, really need all the support that we can get, um, not only in terms of um, uh, resources and material support, but also in the form of um, volunteers uh, to run and to continue uh, running Bulatlat and other alternative media outlets. That was an excerpt of a, an exchange that I had with Len Olea, who is the managing editor at Bulatlat.com. That's B-U-L-A-T-L-A-T.com. That is uh, one of the longest standing independent uh, media outlets online in the Philippines. They're very influential within the country, also within the mainstream media. Uh, they play an important role in bringing critical perspectives to the media landscape. Thank you so much to Len uh, for taking the time to speak on the show today. Um, and uh, I'm going to go to a piece of music uh, that I really like by DJ Crush. Um, I remember hearing this in Manila, so I'll play it here. This is Free City Radio.
You're tuned into Free City Radio. Uh, I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. This is the 26th edition, and it is the 26th of January. Thanks for being with us. I'm here in Montreal. I'm sharing some conversations that I've had over the last few weeks with uh, friends and also just awesome people in different parts of the world. Uh, thanks for tuning in. I just want to remind people that if they want to subscribe to the Free City Radio podcast, you can. Um, look us up. We're on Apple Podcasts, Free City Radio. Um, and tell your friends. Give us a rating, too. That's um, really appreciated. I do this from home, totally DIY. So uh, any support is super appreciated. Thank you. Um, I'm next going to go to an excerpt of a conversation that I had with Sonali Kolhatkar. Uh, Sonali is uh, the host of a really awesome uh, daily news program um, in the LA area on the Pacifica radio station there. It's called Rising Up with Sonali. Uh, I've known Sonali for some time. Actually, we hosted an an event in Montreal where Sonali spoke um, specifically about the condition of women in Afghanistan. Sonali has been involved in many years uh, supporting women's movements in Afghanistan and uh, over the last decade has been hosting this really excellent show called Rising Up with Sonali. And uh, she looks at the ways that social movements are responding to uh, the political issues of the moment. Um, And I thought it'd be important and interesting to speak with Sonali about um, a few points uh, one of them being um, the importance of community activists in the mobilization against the extreme right, against Trump in the United States um, within the context of the fall election. I had something similar um, within the last podcast, a similar focus when I was talking to um, community organizer Bianca Garcia in uh, the Detroit area. Um, I had a similar conversation with Sonali uh, about some some of the same points, but I I wanted to underline this because I do think it's really interesting the decision that uh, social activists made to um, take action and to be involved in voting out Trump while also sustaining their work as community organizers that really um, were also focused on fundamental critiques of the political and economic system that the Democratic Party is uh, deeply uh, a part of in the United States and globally. Um, So that contradiction and that space, I think, is an interesting thing to reflect on. So I wanted to talk with Sonali about this. So here's a part of our conversation. Uh, Yeah, so my name is Sonali Kohatkar, and I'm the host and executive producer of a a daily radio and television drive time program called Rising Up with Sonali. It um, airs on radio stations and television stations around the country. My home uh, station is KPFK Pacifica Radio, where I've been working for nearly two decades. Uh, Just being a progressive political analyst and journalist doing all sorts of, you know, news started out doing a lot of local stuff. But now that the show is syndicated nationally, we cover national and international politics. Uh, I'm also a weekly columnist with Independent Media Institute. So I do print journalism, too. And my columns are picked up in outlets around the country, including Salon and others. Um, And it's been it's been an interesting Four years. Uh, it's been a really terrifying four years. I've, in my all my years of doing journalism, I've never seen a news cycle that moves this fast. Uh, and so, you know, doing a, a taped show has its challenges because everything that you cover 
could change on a dime in an hour. Um, so having to deal with that and also just trying to be on top of the craziness coming out of Washington, D.C. and the rest of the country. But the last few weeks in particular, of course, have been um, and since the election have been very, very uh, challenging, but they've also been you know, exciting to see the fact that, a, you know, majority of Americans, not a huge majority, but a majority of Americans have rejected the politics of extremism and, and hate and right wing, um, you know, uh, mania and, and disinformation and have mobilized. Um, and we're seeing the backlash to the backlash in the last week or so at the Capitol building, watching that attack on the most hallowed halls of government in the United States felt like another September 11th almost, although of course not as many people died and it wasn't a foreign enemy, quote unquote. Um, it was horrifying to see Americans who were so brainwashed attack with such impunity and ease the seat of government in the United States. It, Shouldn't have surprised me because I've been following so closely the dangers of, of right-wing extremism, but nonetheless, it was really harrowing to see that unfold. And so, yeah, we've just been trying to keep our heads above water and cover it. It's always an extra challenge to be an independent journalist because A, you don't have the resources that corporate media does, and B, you are trying to hold both right-wing media and liberal corporate media accountable and also... Um, hold politicians accountable from the left when all, most of the pressures that they face are from the center or the right. So there's all these multiple challenges and yeah, it's been interesting. Well, thanks so much, Sonali, for sharing all that. Um, and, and there's two points I, I was really hoping to talk to you with and follow up to what you're saying. But first, um, just in terms of thinking about what happened in November and the massive mobilization that happened in a number of cities. I mean, I particularly think about Detroit, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, um, uh, um, Phoenix, of course, where, where the grassroots activist networks did make a very clear decision to mobilize in a serious way over a sustained period of time to vote against Trump. And a lot of the groups leading that effort are grassroots organizations that beyond elections are involved in, in community-based struggles like Lucha in Arizona or many groups in Michigan um, uh, fighting for migrant justice, uh, groups in Michigan fighting for, um, you know, uh, I mean, social justice in general, but activist groups, which many of which I know that you feature on your show. And, and the interesting point I found this in this case, you know, which is maybe uh, a shift is that there was that decision to mobilize against fascism or, or Trump and vote against him with a full awareness that all these struggles continue beyond the election. It may seem simple, but in fact, this is not necessarily something we saw in 2016 or in past elections, if we go all the way back to 2000 with with Bush and Gore and Ralph Nader. So it's it's obviously more, it's it's a different situation. So I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, you know, I think it, it was a reality check for the left after 2016 when we saw that it wasn't enough to dismiss the right and the left and say, let the liberals sort it out. Of course, Hillary Clinton will win and we'll just hold her feet to the fire. And unfortunately, many on the left sat out that election or simply didn't 
uh, take the threat of Trump seriously enough. And what we're seeing now, I think, is an acknowledgement of progressive movements that we cannot either, we cannot sit out the electoral process. We cannot ignore the electoral process. And I think it's also been a lesson for liberals who relied entirely on the electoral process to realize that we cannot ignore forces outside the electoral process. It's, a, it's an important lesson for the left because the right has done it so effectively. They've mobilized outside of the electoral system and inside. We have an inside-outside strategy. And we're seeing a little bit of that among progressives. So last year, it, there was a very serious realization and it was so important to have that realization, the Democrats aren't gonna save us. If we leave it up to just the Democratic Party to defeat Trump, we will have a repeat of 2016. And so I think progressive leaders and organizations made a very concerted decision, a wise decision to ally with liberal forces in the country, to mobilize the vote, to, to use the ballot box to defeat Trump, not necessarily to elect Biden, but to defeat Trump. Um, and you know, electing Biden for the, for the longer term and more important goal of defeating Trump. And I think that was a really important realization and a very effective one. Mm-hmm. And you know, in many ways, and we all complain about the electoral college. I know you in Canada probably are confounded by how the electoral college system works and it confounds many of us too. And because of the electoral college system, Trump won in 2016. But I think many organizations realized that they could use the, <laughs> the uh, pitfalls of the electoral college yes. to mobilized in just the right places and just the right time and just the right ways and mobilized in those so-called swing states to beat Trump. And so all of those urban centers, cosmopolitan, uh, densely populated, diverse, racially diverse cities in swing states like Phoenix and Arizona, like Atlanta and Georgia, like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, um, very effectively overwhelmed the rural vote in their states. And, and it confounded the right who started, who saw Donald Trump leading in those states. But as the votes from the urban centers and the densely populated cities began to be counted, that was clearly uh, reversed and decisively reversed. So it was a very important realization. Yeah. It was a wise decision. It was an important one. And phase one, if that plan has now been almost complete, right? Phase, I guess phase one will be complete on January 20th when Biden takes office. Phase two, just as important, is to uh, hold Biden accountable from the left. And that's going to be the next challenge for activists, for journalists. Thank you so much, Sonali, for that reflection. Just two more brief questions. Um, One comes to mind is the importance of addressing conspiracy theories, right? And I mean, that's a huge term, but um, I think that this is a challenge that people haven't really figured out, right? Um, Because often conspiracy theories are seen as a critique of power, uh, but they lack that analysis of systems, whether it's systems of colonialism, systems of oppression um, that the left has fortunately decoded and articulated, Um, but that, that articulation and decoding has not traveled into the same realms where these conspiracy theories have really got traction that have worked to mobilize people. And of course, there's many complicated reasons that involve systemic racism, why people are drawn to these simplistic answers around conspiracy theories. Um, But anyways, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that challenge, right? Which I think will become more and more uh, in the next year in 2021. 
Um, I think it's a huge challenge um, for everybody, the le left and the right. Um, you know, I, having been a journalist for the past 20 years, I've seen um, this insidious kind of full circle overlapping between the far right and the far left on certain conspiratorial thinking and certain issues. The 9-11 truthers is a big part of it. Um, and, you know, the right has its own sort of special brand of conspiracy theories, but some of them do overlap with the left, uh, the JFK assassination, the moon landing. And now, of course, we're seeing the anti-vax movement, uh, you know, really infecting the far right and the far left in a way that is very, very dangerous. Um, and, of course, Trump perfected the art of manipulating a disaffected Per, uh, faction of the population, how he could convince many on his base, many among his base who, you know, voted for President Obama mm -hmm. who, to, to then turn around and be deeply convinced that he was going to, you know, first, the <laughs> first they were convinced against all evidence that he was going to be a populist and lift them out of poverty. But then, of course, very quickly, he became some messiah who was also going to save um, abused and trafficked children from pedophile rings run by the Democrats and on and on and on. Um, and, and they can't keep their uh, logic straight, right? So the law, the party of law and order devolved into violence and chaos. And so now the new conspiracy is that Antifa was <laughs> infiltrating the right-wing pro-Trump movements. And it's very, very dangerous. Those people who attacked the Capitol were truly convinced of one, that the election was stolen against all evidence, and two, that they could do something about it by physically attacking the Capitol. They literally thought they could stop the Vice President Mike Pence from certifying Joe Biden's win, that in their fantastical you know, reality would result in the election having you know, to be redone in, in swing states that would lead to Trump's win. I mean, when you look at it, it sounds so far-fetched, but they were truly convinced they were going to achieve that. And people died as a result. So but we're also unfortunately seeing a, a far too much conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking on the left. And I think we don't hold ourselves accountable enough. We don't call it out enough. Too many people on the left acknowledge, accept the conspiracy theorists, theorists among them as, you know, oh, well, it's just, it's harmless. I mean, for years I've seen on the left during the Bush administration, um, you know, about 10% of, of all the people I came in contact with who had a very good anti-war progressive analysis also held these 9-11 truth beliefs. And the rest of the 90%, maybe it was a smaller number, um, just accepted that, allowed it to flourish, didn't think about it, didn't want to talk about it, didn't want to call it out. And those who did call it out got labeled government stooges, gatekeepers, CIA, blah, blah, blah. I've had all these accusations thrown at me. And we are at the point now where the anti-vaxxer movement and other conspiracy theories are infecting the left in a way that's going to be an Achilles heel for our movements. And we need to call it out with courage and, you know, and, and not allow them the space that they are occupying because unfortunately far too many of them are occupying space on my own radio platform on my own radio station uh, there's too many of these thinkers that are given credence and it's really disappointing and and I face a lot of anger from people when I call it out but and I shouldn't be you know one of the few people calling it out I know that I'm not but I, you know at my station I am um, just one of a handful of people who call it out and, and we get lambasted and that's got to stop.
Thank you so much, Sonali, for sharing that. Uh, last question would actually just be a relation of the two previous ones, which is when we think about, um, you know, social challenges, let's say, whether it's the mobilization for Medicare for all in response to health crisis, whether it's about uh, the existence of labor unions as a result of struggles of workers over generations that, that actually created the conditions for labor unions to exist and for um, uh, there to be some framework, although it could be vastly improved for workers' rights, uh, just as two examples, or even the EPA, environmental protection in response to the climate justice movements of generations past. Um, I, I, I guess in relation to conspiracy theories, um, just any thoughts about acknowledging actually that social movements did create these changes in institutions and were successful in totally shifting paradigms on a, on a huge number of vastly important uh, frameworks in our society. And, and I, I, I mentioned that in relation to conspiracy theories, um, just because it seems that those narratives really disempower social movement history and also social movement organizing in the moment. Uh, you know, I agree. And, and, and part of it is that there's uh, conspiracy thinking is fueled by so much deep cynicism toward government. Um, there is an anti-government threat on the right, and they have this very well thought out logic and ideology about why government is evil. Um, and, gov you know, go tracing all the way back to Reagan, who articulated it. Um, but unfortunately, some of that infects the left as well. And, 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 and it's, it shoots ourselves in the foot because we know government can't be trusted, but we also, you know, to just do things on its own always correctly. Mm -hmm. But I think too many of us lose sight of the fact that government is and ought to be more accountable to us. All government is, is a system of organizing how our taxpayer dollars are dispensed. That's, that's basically, you know, and, 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 and how laws are created and, and, and um, respected. And government is what we want it to be. And doing away with government isn't the solution because then we've literally hurt ourselves. Neither is strengthening government overly, right? We, we, we can't, uh, there needs to be, the, the power dynamic between people and government needs to be such that government is responsive to people while protecting minorities. Um, it's a dynamic, complex mm -hmm. you know, system that we need to be engaged in rather than cut off from. And I, I think far too many on the left have cut themselves off from it. So, so many people I would hear for years, even before Trump especially, change comes from the streets, not the halls of power. Yes, that's true. It comes from the streets to hold those in the halls of power accountable, not separate from or, or, or cut off from those in the halls of power. And why not infiltrate the halls of power with, with, with our own people, which now we have done successfully, mm -hmm. thanks to the work of Justice Democrats, Democratic Socialists of America, the Bernie Sanders base. We have put in, grassroots communities have put in representatives into Congress who are first-time politicians who are not from the seasoned halls of power and who echo our movements in a very serious way. And it's not just the squad because now they're in their second term, we have elected new people to government. Corey Bush and Jamal Bowman, Raphael Warnock in the Senate. These are people who come from uh, social movements, who mm -hmm. come from communities of color, who come from um, 
you know, who come from an organizing background and they are there because we put them there and mm-hmm. that, that should be seen as a success. And we need to build on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're already seeing people on the left dismiss those folks and and now that they're in power just because they have some political power are seen as the enemy. I mean, that's counterproductive. Um, If we want to further a progressive agenda, we have to, yes, hold them accountable, obviously, but we have to do it in a way that's smart, not just uh, dismiss them, Mm -hmm. engage them, hold them accountable, make them do our bidding, um, um, elect more of them, and work, work to make that system better. Not work within the system because people dismiss that idea, but work to make that system better inside, outside. Uh, the right has done it very successfully to our detriment. And the left needs to do it in a way that's even better and smarter uh, because everyone benefits, um, because our politics are beneficial to all, not just a handful of of, of uh, elites. Uh, the politics of the right benefit elites. The politics of the left benefit everybody. Thank you so much. I just wanted to mention briefly your show before we we, we leave, um, just because you've made that decision to actually remain within a community inst- institution, a community radio station, and, and are now you putting it on different platforms and it's getting out there and it's, it's really great. So I'm just wondering, given everything you've saying, you have been saying, um, can you talk about why it was important for you to still remain rooted in the community sector and like a, you know, your radio station has like historic ties to, you know, community uh, social justice movements. Um, so despite this, uh, you know, thinking about power, you have decided to remain within a community radio station. Um, well, partly because of why I went into journalism. I didn't go into journalism through having gone to journalism school or gotten a degree in journalism. I came to it looking for a way to make my life meaningful, take my educational privilege and create meaningful change. And a very simple reason why I've remained at KPFK is because I can tell the truth, analyze power in a way that I can't do in a mainstream corporate outlet. I would not be allowed to speak my mind. I would be considered too far left to this, to that, um, you know, and, and, um, the freedom to, to speak, the freedom to analyze, to critique thoughtfully. Unfortunately, there are far few spaces left in traditional media for that. Of course, the internet has opened them up. And so I, I have worked very hard to expand the reach of the, the program to internet and online platforms, because that's where people are consuming their media now. We have to go to where the audience is. Um, and, you know, it's been gratifying and amazing. And yeah, I'm, I, you know, certainly not in it for the big bucks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a tough, it's a tough thing to do community radio, because and as you well know, you're constantly having to um, be responsible, not just for covering the news, but for raising the funds for your own salary and, and your fellow staffer salary. And so you're in the job of fundraiser and journalist, and, it, and it's exhausting. Uh, if you know a way out, let me know <laughs> while, while keeping my principles intact. <laughs> Thank you, Sonali. Thank you so much, Stefan. Thank you. That was an excerpt of a conversation I had with Sonali Kolhatkar, who's in the LA area. She hosts an awesome show called Rising Up with Sonali. You can find that uh, risingupwithsonali.com. Uh, thanks for being on the show, uh, Sonali. This is Free City Radio, the 26th edition. It is the 26th of January. Uh, I'm here in Montreal. 
I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Uh, thanks for uh, tuning in. Thanks for listening. Um, I wanted to go to a piece of music uh, that I've been listening to uh, recently by the Trio Joubran.
that was a piece by the trio Jubran, uh, three Palestinian artists, musicians. And uh, I wanted to use that music uh, as a segue um, to our next conversation, which is about Palestine. This is a conversation I had with Sam Bahur, uh, who is a Palestinian-American, who's a writer. Uh, and I've spoke to Sam over the years. Uh, he contributes regularly to The Guardian, has written for The New York Times, and I think brings an important perspective um, from Occupied Palestine. Our conversation really revolves around the ways that the pandemic has disproportionately impacted uh, the Palestinian people who are under occupation from the Israeli state. Um, but the Israeli state has decided to not um, support the Palestinian people with any vaccines. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, it, this is a colonial situation, right? And uh, the Israeli state is occupying, is the colonial occupier of the Palestinian lands. So I was thinking about that, and I wanted to talk with somebody on the ground, I think, who can offer a, a nuanced and layered perspective on the Palestinian experience uh, on the ground right now in occupied territory uh, in Palestine. So this is an excerpt of a conversation I had with Sam Bahur. Thank you for having me, Stefan. I'm, uh, I'm a Palestinian-American, originally from Youngstown, Ohio. I relocated to Palestine after the Oslo Peace Accords in 1994-95, and I've been here ever since. I actually relocated here to establish the first uh, telecommunications company, it was one of the chapters of the Oslo Peace Accords, which gave us the ability to do so. And I, uh, we did that successfully, even though after I got here on the ground, uh, we learned that there are a tremendous amount of restrictions in the agreement and imposed from outside of the agreement by the military occupier, which made that a very big challenge. Uh, so although we did create a company, it's by no means a full-scale independent company because Israel controls uh, the major items of a, a telecom sector, or for that matter, any sector. Um, after doing that, I went off and got an MBA at Tel Aviv University, came back to Ramallah. Uh, I live in Albire, which is right behind me here. Uh, it's a sister city of Ramallah, and opened up a consulting firm and had gone on after that to establish for a group of investors uh, what everybody here calls a mall, but I will call a shopping center because it's not a mall, it's a shopping center. And now I'm back full-time into uh, uh, my consulting business. Um, actually, it's not full-time. I spend about 70% of my time in business, uh, making a living, and about 30, 35, 40% of my time, my wife would say more, uh, in civil society. And that means writing, uh, trying to articulate to a Western audience, mainly an American audience, what's happening here, and speaking to a lot of the foreign groups that are coming through. Uh, of course, during the COVID pandemic, that stopped, but there is a tremendous amount of interest of especially youth, especially Jewish American youth, to be more specific, that were coming for years on end after the Oslo Peace Accords failed, trying to get a grip for what, what's going what's to happen next, what could happen next. And a lot of those uh, visits moved online, and I still give those kinds of talks. Um, and I'm involved in a set of uh, different NGOs. Uh, everything from um, a music development uh, arts uh, NGO in Palestine to Just Vision, which does professional documentaries based out of Washington, D.C. So I, uh, I fill my time like they say. 
thank you so much for breaking that down and uh, respect to you for everything you're doing um, in, in Palestine. So I guess first to start, I mean, there's a lot we could address, um, but um, just as a starting point, Sam, uh, if we could uh, look at the issue of uh, annexation, um, you know, this was something at least uh, here in Montreal that uh, drew a lot of attention this summer um, when the um, Netanyahu government in, in Israel announced the annexation of the Jordan Valley, uh, there was some backtracking in terms of public rhetoric around um, that happening. But it speaks to the larger issue of um, the sort of crawling colonization process in, in, in Palestine in the West Bank. So I'm just wondering if you could break down, Sam, um, you know, what that means now uh, and also just how um, how that really speaks to a larger process that is on a that's happening on a day to day level that maybe isn't you know one simplistic policy but actually sure. it's, it's a continuum just for people to understand because you know it was sort of announced that okay this full scale annexation isn't going to happen and it's sort of understood that that's ending however I mean you know, as you've written about so much that th th this is part of a process. So if you could contextualize that a bit, thank you. Sure, uh, and I've been asked uh, to give several presentations on annexation. So I actually have a presentation that I'll point people to if they'd like to see a, a full understanding. Uh, but the short story is that, and as I titled my presentation uh, that I gave, uh, I called it another Israeli annexation version 2020. Because one needs to understand that the act of annexation is uh, something that Israel used as a tool uh, from hours into the uh, uh, occupation of the occupied territory. One can actually go further back and say that annexation was a tool that was used inside the creation of the state of Israel. But if we want to start with the occupation, uh, there's an entire neighborhood, uh, the Moroccan quarters, inside the old city of Jerusalem that was levied flat uh, only like eight days into the occupation, actually bringing the houses down on one lady who couldn't move fast enough to leave. Um, and the goal was to uh, not have houses that Palestinians can return to. Um, that today is known as the Western Wall Plaza. That was a neighborhood where that big open plaza is today. So Israel's use of annexation is a known factor. The entire world stood up and said that was wrong. And that's why until the Trump administration came to power, no country in the world acknowledged that Israel had rights as a sovereign power in East Jerusalem, not only the old city, but the entire East Jerusalem, uh, because annexation is a blatant violation of international law. Fast forward during the years, Mm -hmm. Before Oslo, throughout Oslo, and even more today, actually on steroids today, Israel has multiple means to do what we call creeping annexation, which means it does all the things it has to do to create a new reality on the ground. So when it comes time to announce actual formal legal annexation, uh, it's not really a news story because the damage would have been done over years. Uh, kind of like a slow ethnic cleansing, very different than an ethnic cleansing that happens on a people within a month. Um, and that's what's happening to us. So creeping annexation, taking land, uh, creating settlements on it, uh, then creating a road network, connecting the settlements. And if it's not settlements, they'll take a big swath of land in the West Bank 
and designated as a nature reserve, which means Palestinians can't build on it. And then in addition to that, they'll take another swath of land and call it an army testing area where they're going to do shooting exercises. So no Palestinian can build around that either. Take the settlements and the road network and the nature reserves and the archeological sites that have been designated as such and take the shooting ranges that they've created, you have no room left in the West Bank for Palestinians to actually grow. So Israel does not stop for one day aiming towards creating the reality on the ground that would allow them to announce a formal annexation with little fanfare. What happened in this last round is that you're right. It took note around the world that Israel was doing something that was going to rock the boat, change the reality, maybe dismiss with the solution that the world has identified as the most practical one. And they stood up. European Union stood up, churches stood up, uh, countries stood up, and it worked. And it's a prime example that when countries and civil society want to act clearly and, and, and without uh, covering up their words, uh, Israel will, could be pushed back. And that's exactly what happened. And how did they get pushed back? Not, they didn't go back into their cubbyhole and go back into the slow ethnic cleansing kind of process. They always do that, no matter what. What they did is, with Trump, they had to have a fanfare of failure. And that was called, let's normalize with some Arab states. Let's make a big deal about making a relationship with two Arab states, which are the furthest away from the actual ground zero here in Palestine, Israel. And that was Bahrain and the Emirates. And if you look at the actual agreement, it's an arms agreement. So anyone excited about that fanfare of covering up the failure of annexation and being replaced by an arms race that has just started in the Middle East, I think needs to read in more detail uh, because that's what these are. These are transactional acts that covered up a failure, but at the same time got the U.S. and Israel to sell more weapons to some very rich Arab countries. That can't go but in the wrong direction. Because now other countries in the Middle East are thinking of how they're going to arm themselves, and we know that as the arms race. And a Middle East arms race could be one of the most deadly in the world, given the fragility of what's happening around us. Sam, thank you so much for for, uh, sharing this context and your thoughts on this. Uh, Really appreciate it. Of course, when we talk about the arms race, uh, you know, there are you know, a lot, there are a lot of points of departure there, but just to mention briefly that, of course, this is in relation to the U.S. pressure, sanctions on Iran and the dynamics in the region in relation to Saudi Arabia and some Arab Gulf nations uh, aligned to Saudi Arabia in this, in this proxy war uh, that has had deadly consequences uh, throughout the region, particularly in Yemen. Um, and, you know, that, that's really important. I think what you mentioned in terms of looking at this uh, in regards to the military industrial complex and who benefits from this sort of tension. So I, I was wondering if you could look at that in terms of what all these dynamics mean for people on the ground, right? Like, and you mentioned this peace accord um, affecting um, 
well, peace accord, I think, is a problematic term, of course, but um, these agreements, let's just call them agreements between the Israeli state and the government in Bahrain and the uh, United Arab Emirates, um, that is very far removed from what's happening on the ground in Palestine. Um, and there's profits being made within you know, these military style agreements, but what, what is actually, you know, what does this mean for working people? You know, I mean, and, and working people in the context of Palestine, we're talking about, you know, farmers, uh, students, um, uh, small scale businesses, absolutely. people trying to survive, refugee communities, yeah. You're absolutely right in not calling it a peace agreement. There was no war between Israel and the countries they made these agreements with. So it is strictly a transactional uh, force fed from the US Trump administration uh, for the sake of business, it seems. Um, for the people, for, let, let's keep in mind there's two things at play here. One is, one has to do with the Arab world. There was an Arab world consensus that no, but no country will go forward with normalizing with Israel fully until Israel ended the occupation. And what Bahrain and Emirat did is they broke that Arab peace initiative consensus. And uh, so in the Arab world, there's a dynamic that uh, brethren uh, stabbed each other in the back. Uh, so that's one dynamic. The other dynamic has to do with uh, an Israeli mindset that has always been there. It's not new. There's always been two camps in Israel. One camp says, let's work with the Palestinians. Let's, let's, let's try to figure a way to make it work. And then if that works, Israel can have access to the entire Arab world peacefully. The other outside-in strategy, which is where Netanyahu sits and has sat for a long time, says the Palestinians are not willing to surrender. And we need them to surrender. So the best way to get them to buckle is to make agreements outside in the Arab region and have the Arab region with us put pressure on the Palestinians and then they will buckle and accept less than what they deserve under international law. That will not work, but that's what's being tried. In the meantime, what is the fallout for the average person in Palestine? It means that the Trump administration has twisted the arms, not only of those Arab countries that made these normalization agreements, but with all Arab countries, including European countries for that matter, and kind of forced them to stop funding the Palestinian uh, uh, political environment, civil society environment. So within, a, within two years, I would say, the funding here shrunk. And what does that mean? It means hospitals are no longer being supported. Civil society can't provide health care. Those kinds of issues which are in our society, civil society plays a major role in it, get damaged from the foundational level. And then came COVID as another layer to our misery. And it required serious health care and serious health uh, services. And all of a sudden, uh, the American administration was appealed to. And listen, politics aside, people are dying. We need to your support. Uh, and we need it because you're supporting the entity which is occupying us. If we were not occupied, we can deal with this like all the other countries. But you have an ally who has their boot on our neck. Yeah. So at least make sure people aren't dying in the meantime. The Trump administration proudly said, go to hell. You either buckle and surrender your political rights 
or we don't care what happens to you. And the Palestinians have been through some hard times before. He definitely has not read history uh, because he's about to go to jail. We're still standing. Um, and we will continue standing until our rights are achieved. Thanks, Sam. Last point. Um, so you're in, in, in Palestine and I'm just wondering, you know, just thanks for all this analysis, really appreciate it. Um, so how's it going for you? And like, what's the vibe? you know, with your friends and family, what are, I mean, I, obviously what you've just mentioned about COVID is present, you know, and um, I really appreciated your last comments about, about Trump and we'll see where that goes. Uh, um, so yeah, like what, how, how's it feeling on the ground these days? It's, it's difficult on many levels. One level, everybody in the world is feeling it. I mean, the COVID pandemic has levied a cost on all of us personally and mentally and business-wise. Uh, and that's the case here as well. Uh, I just came four hours ago from the cemetery. We buried an uncle who died of COVID. So we're, we're feeling the brunt of this pandemic. And the sad part here is that Israel consciously and publicly has stated that they will not allow the Palestinians to receive uh, the vaccine. And as the occupying power, it is their responsibility and obligation yeah. to make sure the people who they are occupying yeah. uh, receive uh, health care. So the we're, 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 we're feeling the, the pinch of that in a very serious way. Yeah. Um, and remember, we're in a very congested area. When you go to a refugee camp or you go to the Gaza Strip, um, the outbreak in these areas spreads much faster than an urban area. So we are facing that in a very serious way. Another layer is the occupation itself. Uh, during the Trump administration, the occupation has accelerated its acts on the ground, whether it's, I mean, today in the morning, it was announced yesterday, it was, it was reported, the Israeli settlers uh, cut down 2,000 olive trees up in the north of the West Bank. These are trees which take a long time to nurture. These were, I think they said, five to six-year-olds. They talk about a tree in the Palestinian culture and actually in the Jewish culture as well as a child. You actually rear a tree before it gives fruit. You cherish this tree. And when you cut 2,000 trees, you're not only damaging nature, but you are damaging the livelihoods of 2,000 families. Um, and this is happening when, you know, in the, in the Jewish tradition, a tree is sacred in a way. So I have no idea the people behind this, where they're placing their mindset. So we have this aggressive approach by the occupation, not only cutting trees, but making arrests of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza less so because Gaza is sealed off. But they're doing it on a rate which is unheard of. We're talking about 10 to 20 Palestinians taken from their beds between three and five o'clock in the morning um, and met some of them children. Uh, and it's a revolving door. You have about 700,000 Palestinians who have gone to the Israeli prison system since 1967. So it is a, a mode of operation that they've accelerated under Trump. And then you have the, the, the settlement enterprise, which refuses to even slow down, just the opposite. Mm -hmm. Trump gave Netanyahu a green light to continue to announce and issue settlement uh, um, uh, building permits and so forth, also at a rate we've never seen before, including the demolition of houses that go along with that. So all of that together is another layer of the occupation itself. And we have the third layer, which is our internal domestic layer, 
which is very, very tense right now. We have a administration which uh, is refusing to hold elections and the elections that were last held were 14 years ago for a four year term. So we have this legitimacy issue on the ground within our own leadership, which is causing uh, tension. Uh, also because they are making the open space to act politically shrunk every day by violating people's rights. So if you take our domestic level and the occupation level and layer of uh, COVID on top of that, you can imagine the reality here. Um, so we're hitting, I mean, the, the, the numbers came out from the Statistics Bureau last week. Uh, the expectation is in 2020, our economy would have had a, I think it's a 12% drop. Usually GDPs are measured in half percentage points. This is a 12% drop. And that's only the formal economy. I would assume if you add the informal economy, we're looking at a 25% drop in economic activity. So you're talking about livelihoods are being challenged. We see that in a day-to-day -day, uh, way by an increase in crime level, increase in domestic abuse. That's how it proliferates over time. And that's dangerous uh, because this is a powder kit. We don't need any more matches thrown at us. That is a conversation I had with Sam Bahur, who is a Palestinian-American writer, uh, businessman. He lives in the occupied West Bank. And uh, thank you, Sam, for joining the show. This has been the 26th edition of Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. We come at you every Tuesday. Um, thanks for tuning in. Um, I just would like to say once again, thank you to everybody who's been listening. And also, please... Um, let your friends know um, to subscribe if you're interested in the content. They can subscribe by searching Free City Radio. Um, if you have subscribed already, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It'd be really appreciated. If you want to reach me about anything, I'm at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. And I'm on Twitter at Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. And so thanks for being with us. We'll be back next week. And I wanted to share a piece uh, from an upcoming album by a collective uh, that I'm involved in here in Montreal called Rev Sonar. And uh, this is a piece that we released recently. It's from an upcoming album that we're working on uh, called Crepescule. Uh, this piece is called Mondial. And um, shout out to Nick Schofield, uh, who produced this track, and to Devin Brasha-Waldman on saxophone, as well as Ari Swan on violin. Um, thanks for tuning in. This has been Free City Radio. Uh, we'll see you next week. Hey.